I am excited to chat with Christian therapist Peter Anderson today because to me it seems like there are a few topics that are always popular in influential circles like Hollywood and academia and political groups and those kind of trickle down to the public discourse on social media platforms. Those topics that are currently kind of dominating the conversation are racial complaints, and conflicts, uh, the push to normalize gender dysphoria as a lifestyle, and then just the mental and relational health conversation in general. And what I mean by that last one is that I think that a lot of conversations that people are having basically boil down to if we all just thought a certain way about X or treated X group of people a certain way, then our issues would all be solved. And because of political correctness, our ability to talk about what we should or shouldn't think or what we should or shouldn't do has really been impeded. So civil discourse is kind of breaking down around us. So that's why I want to talk to an expert on mental and relational issues who can come at them from a more clinical perspective, but also a Christian perspective. Peter's background is very varied. <laughs> He's <laughs> got experience acting, um, an environmental engineering degree, a master's of divinity, and a master's of marriage and family therapy from Reformed Theological Seminary, and a degree in Hebrew literature. You have been very busy <laughs> and with so many varied interests. What drew you towards counseling and therapy? Well, thanks for having me on. Yes. Um, well, uh, yeah, it's funny you said that. I, I, I got into counseling really when I was I was studying to be a pastor, and I was getting my MDiv. Uh, so to kind of back up, I, I, when, in my undergrad, my mother died of cancer uh, and when I was about 27. And so after that, I started, I was a Christian at the time, and I started asking questions about grief. And I was reading a lot of Jonathan Edwards and uh, John Owen, so I decided to go to seminary after my, uh, after my degree. And then um, when I was studying for my MDiv, I fell in love with my wife, and my wife is very open about this, but she uh, has clinical depression, and she takes medication okay. for it. And um, you wouldn't know uh, with her medication, she's happy and everything else. And, you know, so she taught me a lot, and we married within about nine months after meeting her. And when I was working at a church, I was working at a church at the time, getting my MDiv, and I think I, I just wasn't satisfied with some of the answers I was getting. Um through my MDiv, I, was, I, I appreciated uh, what I was studying, but I wanted to go a little deeper with people. And I noticed that when I would have friends uh, and I would tell them, oh, I'm studying to be a pastor, they would immediately close down. They wouldn't want to go as deep. Uh, but if um, and then I took a class on counseling and it was on listening and I had a uh, I was starting to uh, basically go a little bit deeper with people and I noticed that people would come in and I would use some of the skills that was being that were being taught and people would just open up a little bit or excuse me a lot more and I fell in love with it immediately so I finished my MDiv and then decided to uh, stay on uh, I was scheduled to go to Boston College for a PhD in um, critical thinking but um, the professor there Margaret Shatkin was not invited uh, she was actually not invited to go to the meeting in 2009. This is way back at 11 years ago because um, she was too conservative. And so um, 
I decided that was really the Lord because I decided to stay on and get my counseling degree. It was the best. It was the best uh, decision I think I ever made and been doing it ever since. And I've always had a love for Hebrew literature, love to look at the book of Job. And wow. The only problem is I don't go too deep with Ugaritic or Hebrew literature when clients come in for depression. So unfortunately, <laughs> so I can't. <laughs> right. But you yeah, can, I'm that's... sure you can draw from Job. And oh my yeah, God, sure. <laughs> I am so sorry. I just realized this whole time you could see me. <laughs> And I did not know that our cameras from. So I'm sorry, I haven't looked at you until oh. this moment. I was looking oh. down at my phone because that's yeah. how I'm listening to you. So sorry oh, nice. about that. Oh, nice to see you. <laughs> if you thought that I was super weird socially. No, no, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Because yeah. I didn't I'm, realize yeah. you were right there. <laughs> what, um, what COVID has done where everybody's wearing masks and yes. uh, just seems like we're living in this invisible society. I'm kind of used to it by now. Yeah, exactly. My weird social behavior is <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, that is a very fascinating story. And it's kind of cool that you say that about your wife. My mom struggled mm. with clinical depression growing up so I am mm. familiar with you know kind of watching that struggle and understanding in a pretty personal way what it looks like you know day to day but like you yeah. said in her case now I mean I don't think anyone would know it um but it was definitely a a journey getting there getting to that mm. point where it wasn't kind of taking over her life so I'm glad that your wife oh, yeah. found that. That's yeah, awesome. yeah. It can be very daunting. It can be a very di daunting diagnosis for sure. Yeah. Thankfully, she's, yeah, that's got it under control. But yeah. Well, it helps hmm. to be married to you, I'm sure. Yes. Well, <laughs> I hope not. Somebody who can help <laughs> process that. Wow. Well. Um, so. I'm definitely the sensitive one in the relationship. I'm always wanting her to hear my heart. She's like, just <laughs> really? get over it. Get to work. You know, just, just man up. You know, so I'm like, you're not listening yeah. to me properly. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah, Jeff and I take turns. Right. Sometimes I am so, so sensitive oh. about everything. And then other yeah. times I'm very it's, mean. <laughs> oh, that's funny. It's weird being married to a therapist, I'm sure. Yeah, so she should, she should have a group. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> that's like my chiropractor i was talking to my chiropractor and he has a chiropractor and i was like oh, of course you can't adjust oh. yourself <laughs> no you can't <laughs> that's true so every chiropractor oh, has a chiropractor that's true i believe it yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um we've got a lot of different things to talk about we try to have sort of this like high level general conversation about a lot of the things mm. that i think are weighing on people and then we can get into some of these more specific ones yeah. um but so like I said earlier, I see, you know, these issues of racial division and different theories about gender as kind mm. of heavily shaping the way that people are thinking about themselves and their mm. relationships. And it's happening to like a very extreme degree. And yeah. do you agree with that observation or do you think mm. there are like other identity elements that people are really fixated on? Just kind of what is your take on that? Yeah, no, I 100% agree. I mean, I, I think you could you could boil it down to, I would even say boil it down to people who have a kind of high internal locus of control and people that have a high outer locus of control. And what I mean by that is this is where my clinical work kind of came in. Um, right around 2015, where gay marriage got um, passed and then you started seeing the speech codes around mm -hmm. college campuses. I teach at a university. 
and my just totally different attitudes right around post 2015 than pre 2015, I was able to really have amazing debates with my students. And I think now I pretty much have to police my words pretty, mm -hmm. pretty significantly. Um, I, if you saw me teaching in 2014, I was a different professor than I am in 2020. Wow. So, um, yeah. And so something radically shifted, I would say, right when the DSM-5 came out. And I, I actually was um, at a, working in an agency and there were several psychiatrists that would come to our agency talking about the changes of des gender dysphoria. And uh, people started becoming much more... Um, I guess, uh, intertwined with their internal sense of reality. So what was once uh, debatable from an objective view, like, hey, I don't know if I agree with, quote, gay marriage because I'm a traditional Christian. And I remember saying that to, like, my non-believing friends way back in college, you know, 2004, 2005. And they were like, okay, you know, I get where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. You could not get away with that now mm -mm. because you deny somebody's internal sense of reality. Um, moving forward, especially when it comes to race issues, which I would even say we've gone, when it comes to gender, I think the main number one thing today, I don't want to, um, is, is more like the trans issue more so than gay issues yeah. or lesbian issues, yeah. because I think what people mean by LGBTQ, they, they really kind of mean more about the, the, the kind of seeing a separation between gender and, and sex. And that there's somehow a dichotomy between the two, that what my gender and how it defines who I am is different from my sex, my as my biological sex. And I don't remember having that conversation much, even as a clinician way back in 2014, 2015, but um, excuse me, in 2015, it radically shifted. Um, and so race issues, very similar. I remember having a lot of black friends and we would talk about police and I still have a lot of black friends, I have a lot of African-American clients. And, uh, you know, and it's funny because a lot of my this is um, I should back up. When I first came to Massachusetts, I actually was pretty, pretty liberal. I really? was uh, leaning much more on, to, you know, being a socialist. I was I, I don't know if you are aware of Thomas Sowell. He's kind of yeah. one of my heroes. But um, I was uh, I was in the clinical field. I was getting out from Mississippi. I couldn't stand the racism that I saw in Mississippi. So I was looking for some type of answer. And I was really grabbing hold of multiculturalism, okay. kind of a less leftist, leftist view of the world. But it wasn't until I started engaging my clients um, with them that I started realizing that when they kind of when I meant by earlier about the outer locus of control, when they kind of blamed, quote, the gods for their problems, they just never got better. Mm -hmm. um, when they bore some type of responsibility for themselves, in other words, like, hey, I can't blame my mom, I can't blame my dad, I can't blame God, I can't blame my, my, my son. These people, whatever they were dealing with, whether it was depression, whether it was uh, especially with substance abuse, um, when they started focusing on what they could control, these clients immediately just got better. And I'm wow. like, wow, okay, so yeah. maybe it's not if we change every single teeny tiny system, people will sometimes get better. It's more if we challenge people in a, in a gentle way to sure. take some type of control in their lives. Wow, they just were, they were more engaged. And this happened a lot with um, whenever I counseled, um, Forgive me if I'm interrupt, please. If I go too no, fast no. or anything, I like <laughs> really happened. Where my guests just go. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> this really happened when I was um, counseling abused wives, abused women, and um, one thing I would notice 
with abused women is that they started losing their voice, losing their power and losing their relationship. And um, I, I, what I realized is that some of the counseling methods out there would go in there and say, okay, this is what you have to do. You have to get out of your husband's, you know, your, or your boyfriend's, uh, you know, roof. This is, then you have to, this is what you have to do to contract for safety. The problem with that is that um, the clinician basically hijacked the role as, of the perpetrator and became the person that she then, or he, <laughs> totally yeah. depended on. And what I realized pretty early on is that that's the worst type of um, clinical tactic. What you really want to do is give that person um, a sense of power, a sense of voice, a sense of relationship, and a sense of control so she can, through her own empowerment, get out of that relationship and not overly depend on you. And she just got better, a whole lot better. And so that happened with my minority clients, my clients who were abused. And so that's actually when I started shifting quite a bit. Um, so I bring up Thomas Sowell because he was a hardcore communist until he actually worked at a communistic nation. Yeah. And then he realized maybe this isn't quite working. <laughs> so <laughs> that's that's kind of my story. It was like I got to see firsthand like people um, don't don't. Yeah, they just yeah. they don't clinic. They clinically stay stagnant if you only focus on their environment and they significantly clinically improve quite drastically when you focus on their internal reality. It's, uh, you know, it's funny because I teach theories of counseling at Endicott. And um, I just learned this when I was teaching a class about three years ago. And it's kind of interesting, but behavioralism, cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, even person-centered by Carl Rogers, all these early therapy tactics actually agreed that, um, um, that basically people got better that way. It wasn't actually until the 1960s when feminists or feminism theory came out. And that was the first radical approach. It was somewhat similar to Sigmund Freud, Freudian, that they, they, they actually focused much more on the, on the culture. So feminism therapy would not necessarily help the client, the woman, as much as getting her out or away from these like power structures. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it was actually quite radically different in the 1960s. But I think a lot of people don't realize that therapy, um, uh, was really built much of the therapy therapeutic practices were built on getting people to stop blaming so um i didn't realize that until yeah. i started teaching it <laughs> well feminism has ruined a lot of things <laughs> <laughs> so not surprising that therapy oh, yeah, well. was wasn't also a victim <laughs> yeah right <laughs> well this kind of just in listening to you talk i had a thought mm. you know i was thinking about you know, as you've aptly pointed out, when you focus on what you can control, that just creates mm. this whole like momentum of change. But then when you focus on what you cannot control, things sort of stagnate. And would you agree mm. that what's kind of causing this fixation on this outward reality that people have, that isn't even really, I would say, not even based on mm. truth. Like, yes, mm -hmm. some people are living very oppressive realities, huh. but I'm sure. thinking like, you know, someone who's enslaved in Libya or, you know, like <laughs> someone who's going to have a very hard time thinking, what can I control? Because there's really not that much that they can aside from their yeah. thought life. But we think about you know, the average minority person in the United States, their experience yeah. is very different. There is a lot of things they can control. 
But many yeah. people would argue that I, I'm I'm not telling the truth when I say that. Like, that no, really, there is they can't control this and they can't control that. So is that mm. that false narrative being perpetuated mm-hmm. by a certain source? You think or sources or why is that? You know, have such a hold on people when we can look out yeah. in the world and we can say, I mean, yeah, maybe right. things aren't the way you want them to be, but you can control a whole lot of what goes what happens to you in the United States in 2020. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I do think there's, there's something that goes on in the brain, um, motivational, you know, when you look at motivational counseling, I mean, I, th- I do think there are, there, there is dopamine that gets triggered when you could be a victim mm-hmm. and you immediately get tons of attention. I mean, I see this at the hospital. Somebody will come in and we just give them, I work at the hospital too. I, I do too much. I do. <laughs> Any boundaries, you know, so can you be my therapist? <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, but um, one of the things I see, one of the things I see at um, the hospital is like people will often come in and report kind of the same thing over and over again. And when they come in, we give them tons of attention. We look at them, we give them food, we give them water. I go in there and I'm like, you know, I listen to them, hear their story. And I, I really start getting to know some of the people that are coming in and, you know, they really feel invisible outside those doors and they go to the inpatient unit and they just get tons, tons of feedback, tons of, uh, I don't want to say attention, like they're seeking attention, but I do think that our, our culture does immediately notice you if you are oppressed in a way that you, and this is what intersectionality, you know, uh, is all about. It's wherever you are on the totem pole, the higher you up higher up you are, the more of, um, you know, the more power you have. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I, I think really it's, it's, it's that, but also one of the things I think that frustrates me about a lot of what's going on is that you have a lot of people speaking for groups Mm. and they're not speaking as individuals. And, um, I think this is why we have such intense, you know, anxiety when we're getting into Twitter debates or, you know, Facebook debates is because we never we don't feel like we're speaking to John or Susan. We're we're speaking to Susan and all her friends and what she represents. And as a clinician, as a family clinician, I could see that there's a lot of danger in this. So when I go in and I meet with families and there's, you know, there's a family of eight, let's say, and mom and dad have an opinion about Bill and he's kind of the black sheep. And then the sister has an opinion about Bill, too. And she's really, really passionate that Bill is just trying to, you know, just trying to get attention. And then I keep going down the list. And 99.9% of the time, whenever I talk to the actual kid or the person, they're all dead wrong. (laughs) Bill is not actually struggling with any of the things that they think he's struggling with. You know, it's like dad's actually kind of wrong that he's, you know, Bill's actually not as helpless as he thinks he is. Mom's kind of wrong in the sense that she's been a little bit too soft on him. And Bill actually wishes mom would step up and, you know, have a backbone. Um, And then I talked to Bill and Bill actually gets irritated with his sister because he's always like defending him. And it's amazing to me that when you actually speak to the individual, they have totally different concerns. And I think I have really come down to whenever I'm speaking to people or hearing people, I'm like, okay, who is this? And it's like the same verbatim, you know, this is because of privilege or this is because like the same talking points. Yeah. I'm like, who is, who, I want to know who it is. What do you think? What's, I want to hear what, what your thoughts are. And that's, that's really freed me a lot because I don't see people getting mad at you when you're like, you know, stop with the, you know, 
the nonsense here. Can you tell me what Carmen really, Carmen, I want to hear your voice, you yeah. know, and I think it's, it's this passion to speak for groups. And if I don't speak for the group, I somehow won't represent them. Well, they didn't actually ask you to speak for them. And also, I, I just want to hear you. Uh, are you offended at, you know, this particular issue? And if so, why does it offend you? Tell me your story. I find it, it's, almost, it's almost impossible in some ways just to get to the person, have the person to get to the point where they could just speak their own voice. Mm-hmm. But if I keep pressing and keep pressing and keep pressing, eventually I get there. And it's, it's wonderful when that person finally opens up. And then I'm like, wow, I'm actually having a dialogue. This is fantastic. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Such a rare this is... and refreshing. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Wow. Yeah. yeah that's, yeah, as you're saying, I, mm. I think that's very true. I hadn't even really thought of it that way of so often it does feel like, you know, mm. if this team versus that team and we have to represent the team versus right. like, right. you know, <laughs> right. team quote air quotes around team is made up of all kinds of different people who have different, you know, maybe they are parroting the same things. But if you, Mm. like you said, if you're, if you start peeling back a little bit at a time, there's going to be a lot of variety there within the different people. Thinking Mm. in huge monolithic collective groups is doing us no favors. Right. Right. There's a sense of emotional blackmail that kind of goes on and emotional blackmail. You know, it's going on when there's a good way for me to recognize it is the acronym FOG, F-O-G, fear, obligation and guilt. You know, if you feel like this person is bringing a lot of fear or obligation, you must apologize or guilt. If you don't, it's because of, you know, you know, you have your white privilege or something. That's emotional blackmail. That's that's all that that is. And I I I think. The problem with that is it's very daunting to try to do that when you represent a group of people that you haven't actually spent a lot of individual time with by yourself and you put the task on yourself to do that particular thing. That is a very kind of oppressive approach, you know, to 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 apply that to an individual. I think I actually the more I get to know people that are, you know, radically on the right or radically on the left, they have a lot of guilt that they've, a lot of, um, I guess, burden that they feel like they have to carry a part of them that's very managerial in the sense like, if I don't do this, I won't be, you know, um, on this side. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is why Christians kind of have bought into a lot of this because they have this concept of, you know, um, we have to obey this sovereign God and, you know, apply this law that no one can obey. And um, but so I, I, I think it's, that's where I love when I really hear the individual because, and this is where I think the gospel can really come in and free this person that you don't necessarily have to do that. Um, and the, you know, I, I, that's all I wanted to say about that because yeah. it's just, it's just, it could, it could really, it, it, it's a very oppressive yeah. system. That person, I know that that person I'm talking to, um, is feeling a burden on them that that they have either placed on themselves or someone else has placed on them that I don't think we're meant to carry. Yeah, that's very well said. And I think Mm. I think you're right to point it out that it does happen in both camps. Um, Mm. Certainly, I feel like the progressive movement 
really puts this onus on people to, you know, tear down the system, create yeah. equity, you know, do all these things that are mm. very burdensome, particularly because they're very vague. And, you know, if we, if we try to have a conversation about them that pushes back mm. a little, we're quickly called names, you know, there's sort of that aspect. But then on the flip side, you know, mm. just as you were talking, I was thinking about my own journey into doing hmm. cultural commentary and trying to do um just hmm. you know work to influence culture and sometimes i do i i put way too much um hmm. uh what's the word like too much expectations on myself because i feel hmm. like you know oh i want to change the world for my daughters you know i, I put the like, really, <laughs> yeah you know, yeah and it's and without the gospel, if I didn't mm. know Jesus, if I really thought I could do that and I was failing, <laughs> that would be tremendously <laughs> difficult for me Amen. to bear. Yeah. You know? yeah. So I can only, you know, that, yeah, and that's right. the reality for a lot of people. They mm. don't, they don't know Jesus, but they put the same pressure on themselves. So there's, yeah. it's just sort of this ugh, devastating hamster wheel. <laughs> I guess yeah. The yeah. Work that comes to mind. <laughs> That never ends. Yes, it (laughs) never ends. You're exhausted. And then, Mm. you know, you can't do it by yourself. You're not going to. So it's just a a false goal. I think you were right Mm. that we have, we Mm. are a society of very prosperous but burdened people. It's a weird, Mm. it's a weird moment in time. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good observation. Think Mm. that civil discourse is breaking down so much over kind of the different things we've talked about. We kind mm. of touched on race and gender in particularly, but yeah. you know, feel free to bring up others too. But why does it seem like, like you said, there's mm. sort of this moment in 2015 too, particularly, why is this kind of spiraling out of control? Yeah. Seeming to not be able to talk to each other anymore. Yeah. I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I, I, I think there are a lot of people that are like, <laughs> I feel sometimes that I'm like a gay man in the closet living in the South in the 1980s. And what I mean by that, <laughs> in other words, there's probably a significant more number of people of me that probably think, you know, so yes. that's what I mean by that. It's yes. just, I think there, I think it's more fear than like, I don't want to talk. And that yeah. I get this, especially with my students, like, I can't tell you the number of times where I've just been fair, only fair, not not telling Peter's opinion, but like on, say, for example, gender dysphoria or whatnot, like um, what I mean by fair, what do I mean by that? Well, um, they're often hearing the regurgitation of, you know, gender and sex are different, all this other stuff. And uh, I actually got to listen to the um, American Psychological Association in 2017, the first uh, transgender clinic director. And she had said that trans kids are 75% more likely to go back to their biological sex at the age of 18, 75%. And so she brought up the debate and she was asking us and my jaw just dropped and I was like, wow. And she's neither, I don't, you know, she's pretty liberal, everything, but she was, she brought up a fantastic question. Should we, or should we not give, um, surgeries to eight-year-olds, seven-year-olds, 12-year-olds, and knowing that some of these kids, they will never have kid children again. If it's true that 75%, she said, 
anywhere from 50 to 75, a high number 75, low number 50. Um, is it ethical to do that? And most of these kids have never, ever heard the, the, uh, just other concerns. Right. Um, I will bring up, you know, reports from Brown University about a lesbian um, professor, not a professor, but a student that brought up um, a study that was done. Uh, and she just wanted to ask, it seems like there is a correlation between eating disorders and transgenderism, that they seem to be correlated, um, that right around the age of 15 and 16 with peer pressure, uh, eating disorders often happen a lot with young girls around 15 to 17. They get eating disorders around that time around peer pressure. And the same thing seems to be happening with trans kids. And she was basically ousted from Brown. Actually, excuse me, she wasn't ousted. They decided to not publish her results until another publication tried her results and it came out that she that her um that her results were actually more accurate <laughs> so oh. then they republished them and so i i just kind of say this stuff to my students i i don't tell them where i am politically sure. i don't right. tell You're them where i am even religiously even religiously i just perspective, yeah a fair moment. fair perspective yes that's yes. it and i can't tell you the number of students that i i get and it's like thank you just thank you. And it's just, so I, I feel like it's more, I don't know if people don't want to, I think they're just terrified. And yeah. I, I, I just last, uh, last semester I was teaching psychology and, and I just asked them, I was like, how many of y'all are just terrified of somebody bringing up something you said on Twitter from 15 years ago? Every single person in the class raised their hand. Oh my gosh. And so sad. yeah. Yeah, it really is. Cause I did not live with that. I didn't right. like, you know, I'm 43. I grew up in the you know, 80s and 90s, go Nirvana, you know, so, you know, so well. actually I was more of a smash pumpkins fan, but I mean, I, I just did not grow up with that. So I think it's more the fear. And I think when you present as Christian, I think this is where the, the church could really come in that we're not afraid of your differences. You'll be amazed at how much people may open up with you. Um, that's what I've realized. Yeah. It's like, wow, I could really explore with you. Yeah, you can. I could really ask questions. Yeah. I mean, I had a, yeah, now won't get canceled. (laughs) No, No, but I had a, I had a, um, trying not to break HIPAA confidentiality here, but I had a case a number of years ago with a a parent that went to over nine different, um, clinicians. Uh, this is at a different state and, you know, and they all said to their 15 year old, um, son who was thinking about becoming trans immediately just go get surgery. And I told him what I just said to you. It's about 50%, 75%. And he was just like, oh, okay. And he decided to wait. Come to find out about four weeks later, that person decided, you know what? I, um, no, I, I think I've got other issues going on. Wow. But I, Crazy. you know, yeah, it's just like, and I think that's where Christians can be very secure. It's mm-hmm. like, we don't fear the truth. We can just hear it all is, yeah. um, you know, um, you're, you're allowed to ask, you're allowed to, I'm not, I'm not going to freak out right. if you bring right. up data that, you know, may even help me. Yeah. So well, I, yeah. I love what you're saying. It's, it's part of <clears throat> the reason why <clears throat> we started Stasios is because we do think the church has ceded a lot of cultural ground to secular progressives for a very long yeah. time. And the yes. results have been devastating <laughs> to oh, yeah. pretty much everyone. So that's why we felt like let's create a platform that boldly, unapologetically mm. comments on what is happening. Because people are seeking out the truth. 
Um, mm. It's increasingly harder to do that. But as mm. we see with, you know, sort of the intellectual dark web, if you're familiar with that. Oh, term. yeah. IDW. Yeah. Yep, IDW, <laughs> right. yep, that content, <laughs> right. people love yeah, it. Yeah. And there's sure. really nothing on the mm. IDW that's very explicitly Christian. So we were trying right. to make Stasius fill that need where people recognize wow. progressivism is failing us. It's mm. failing us terribly. Where can we find the truth? And you can get close mm. to the truth with Jordan Peterson or Quillette <laughs> or any of those people. Yeah. But they, they don't usually present the gospel. Um, right. So, yeah. And, and the gospel is ultimately what can kind of tie everything together, you know, carry yeah. through the hardest points of, you mm. know, kind of what you're describing of people working through real issues. Mm. But obviously, <laughs> like you said, lots of people are very scared. That's why our content is um, needed is because there are <laughs> yeah. people who won't say these things. Mm. They don't want to be canceled. They don't want to mm. be slandered. And mm. so, but what we're really hoping is if we can embolden people with the truth, you know, um, build up, rebuild Christian intellectualism into conversations, um, mm. good theology that people will kind of like what you mm. said, just put the truth out there. It will help recognize that it could save someone's life wow. and, yeah. you know, kind of put some I of these conversations yeah. back together again. I love what you're saying because it seems like Christians have had like an insecurity toward like the quote truth as if that's worldly. And it's quite the opposite that yeah. we should be grabbing hold. I love that. Your all's vision is, yeah, that's, that's awesome. I'm on board. Yeah. <laughs> where can I, yes. where do I sign? Yes. <laughs> um, and we mm. kind of touched on this, but I'll let you, if you want to add anything to it, mm. um, we talked about like which approaches are helping people and which approaches are hurting people. And you said earlier, mm. you know, a lot of blame and a lot of outward focus on systems <clears throat> rather than inward control is not helping yeah. is there anything you would add to that that helpful ways of thinking about identity or whatever well i think with hurt too i think one thing that's hurting so i'm, I'm primarily a marriage therapist actually i should preface that so i see a lot of couples and i, I studied john gottman and i like john gottman because gottman's all about just couples he's observed and you know he's not about his own ideology and um he would say the number one reason why people are divorcing is because contempt you know, and contempt mm -hmm. is uh, the same emotion of disgust. You know, when I look down upon my partner as if you are lower than me, that's going to ruin your marriage pretty soon. And Gottman got to a point where he was able to predict in the first three minutes, um, you know, whether or not this person had contempt to the other. And I see that as a marriage counselor. Once the once the most people wait about seven years before they come to see me. Um, unfortunately, because really? there's some since five, seven yeah, is right. like the strange five number. to seven. I don't know oh. what that is. Yeah, what is it about seven? Yeah, um, yeah, weird. right. Matters how much time you have. I can talk about my seventh year. Um, no, but <laughs> uh, actually, I think it's when we had our daughter. So yeah, that was a hard year. Yeah, but um, yeah, we had yeah, Jeff and I. Our hardest oh, was it year seven. No, our hardest year was year five, but yeah, five to seven is right around the because you're just you anyway. So <laughs> yeah, but usually at that point, there's not a lot I can do if contempt has built up so much where I just am, am done. And um, I see, I, I see that uh, especially the whole outer locus of control, blame, what blame does to a person's system. This is one of the reasons why I just hate the word white privilege, why I hate the I'm very careful when it comes to system, the word even quote systemic racism. Yeah. I 
I worked with a lot of inner city black kids. Um, uh, you do not say to a 17 year old black kid who is bitter against his white um, co-patriots mm -hmm. as if they're ruining the world for him that they all have privilege and you should be bitter against them because you would, you're going to really destroy that young man's life. Yeah. You look at him in the eye and you say, buddy, stop blaming people. And you be, you need to, you need to stand up straight. Life has pain. And what are you going to do about your grades? And you need to stop worrying about whether or not you're acting white. Mm -hmm. And you look at that little, you look at that young man as a man and you say, this is what it's like to be a man. And I can't, that is how you talk to not just to young black kids, but more young white kids too, that are on the precipice of bitter and blame and anger. Yeah. Because right when they're 17 and 18, if you put them on that trajectory, you are preventing them from ever having relationships with a loved one, with somebody that's vulnerable. You are preventing them from having relationships with their own kids because they have to show their own failure as well and communicate with their kids when they mess up that it's okay for you to mess up. And so I don't think that's the one thing I really don't like about this movement is that they don't see the ramifications when they just say things because they feel guilty. Yeah. Like you, you need to be really careful who you say that to. Now I'm okay saying white privilege to some kid in Mississippi who is like 19, 22 years old. He has no life experience. He's a white kid who just thinks racism just doesn't exist. And they all just need to pick themselves up by their bootstraps. And I met people like that in my seminary. I'm okay for you to say that to him. But you you, you got to really know the individual here. Right. Because right. if he's on the precipice, like I said, like on, on the road to bitterness, that's going to ruin every relationship. Yeah. And I think that's really what hurts people. Yeah, um, what you're getting at again yeah. is sort of that mm. individual versus the group. Right. Because, oh, yeah. Um, we're talking about an individual mm. white person who is, you know, maybe in some context has some privilege and is using it harmfully. Then certainly. Let's, oh, yeah. Let's yeah. call them out. But then on the flip side, like you said, are we talking to an individual specific young black man and mm. his issues are not, you know, because of some white person who happens to be <laughs> living in the same city or something? You know, there's like. So you're yeah. kind of looking at it mm -hmm. at these mm. as two individuals, two different yeah. lives. Yeah, I want to be careful. At the same time, I think it's okay if he's experienced real racism to weep with him. I do want to sure. say that. Like, I think a part of trauma is recognizing, this is why sometimes conservatives don't get this, is that it's okay to come aside of them and just say, this is awful, this is terrible. But you don't stay there. That's the yeah. thing with trauma. You don't just keep him at the helplessness phase. You. Right. You're all right, buddy. I love you, but you gotta, you can't, you can't stay there. So right. I think it's, I think it's both and. I guess that's, that's, that's all I just want to clarify. But yeah, yeah, didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, you're, <laughs> yeah, fine. So. no you're fine. I yeah, think, mm. I think I've actually had a, a very mm. similar conversation with Carrie mm. Abbott. I don't know if you're familiar with her. She oh. is a radio show in Seattle. We were just talking about how mm. this, so much of this, you know, with. With the with what happened to George Floyd, I don't know anyone who wasn't mm. horrified. I don't oh, know gosh, anyone yeah. who wasn't, right. um, you know, mm. didn't think that was wrong. But right. the weeping with those was weep seemed to be hijacked into kind of what you said of let's just stay here in this very hurt, mm. bitter place mm. of trauma. Rather than right. you know that, that's that's not loving. <laughs> like I don't, I don't you don't yeah. want to force people there, keep them there. Any conversation, right. and again, I mean, probably what the issue is. 
again, we're talking in these big, huge collective mm. terms that mm. these types of conversations, I don't know if they even need to happen in huge, mm. massive collective terms. Um, mm. You know, people, like you said, there are people who have experienced real racism, but then there are people who would say they haven't. And so it's kind of this mess of when yeah. we try to collectivize both the white experience and the black experience and put them in constant conflict with one another rather than seeing where maybe yeah. you can move right. different conversations in more product productive directions. Yeah. 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 That's very well said. Yeah. Very, yeah. Very much. Yeah. Yeah. Like um, mm. One question mm. that came up kind of mm. ties into other ones. I just had this question for you, but mm. others in my group wanted to know about mm. it. So, you know, you said you primarily do marriage therapy do you, oh. Are you outspokenly Christian? Like, are you a Christian therapist? People seek you out because they want Christian counsel? Or are you, you do all clients and you sort of, you know, the Christian aspect informs what you do, but it's not necessarily explicit? Yeah, I would say more the latter. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, people do see that I've gone to seminary. I mean, it's kind of, so Christians will seek me out. It's like, I know, they. it's like, we as Christians, when we see somebody that, has an MDiv, yes. went to a, a, a reformed theological Calvin, yeah. you yeah. know, quote Calvinistic right. seminary. I'd be like, oh They're yeah, like, that guy. <laughs> oh, I know, I like <laughs> that guy. So, but I have a lot of clients who aren't, and I have Buddhists, I have atheists, I have agnostics. Okay. Um, I just, you know, I, I, um, I had to, I had to make that theological, sh not shift, but uh, I had to explore that in seminary. Do I want to be only a Christian counselor, or do I want to help? Uh, do I want to be a Christian in the counseling field? Mm -hmm. And I, I, I decided to do the latter. I, I wanted, um, I wanted to learn the field as well as I can because I don't think there are enough Christians in this field. Yeah, I wanted to do it as, um, as, as well as I could. You know, as, as just as yeah, I, I wanted to put all my heart into it. So yeah. that's I. So I would say I'm a Christian in a secular field. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. And have you found? Mm -hmm. Are you, I mean, I know it's, it's hard in any field mm -hmm. to talk about faith in a lot of ways. I used to be in academia yeah. and so oh, I yeah. know I get like the little, like people knew I was a Christian, but <laughs> right, right. I was kind of like quiet about parts, you know, it was just sort of this yeah, weird thing. Yeah, do you feel <laughs> like you can be, uh, you can, I do. can you bring up yeah. Christianity? Can you I, yeah. have those conversations? I well, you know, one of the one of the wonderful things about the incarnation, the beautiful thing about I, this is why I love about being a Christian is that Jesus wept, and Jesus really understands the the ramifications of sin, and um, it's made me not diagnose the people that are coming in and see them just as a diagnosis, but as a as a complex, multifaceted individual with a variety of. Uh, circumstances that have caused them a lot of pain for them to come and see me and i could i could provide them hopefully the the kind of compassion that they're going to get you know um that they're not going to get anywhere else and i think we as christians should you know um uh strive for that fleming rutledge in her book the crucifixion in christ really talks about um how christians don't know how to grieve american christians mm -hmm. don't know how to grieve it's like we're uncomfortable with it in some capacity like we're you know and i i think you know, we, not to flatter ourselves here, but I think we should make the best, we, it, it would make more sense why we would be the quote, best counselors. Yeah. 
Yeah. Because like we really understand suffering. We really do understand. We should at least. Right. Right. We're we're not thrown off when talking about the book of Job, you know, when God all of a sudden destroys everything and doesn't yeah. give you an answer. Yeah. Um, you know, I, yeah. I, I, you know, there's not easy answers to people's suffering. And I think just being secure in that when somebody's lost a loved one and the, the hardest sessions, honestly, that I have are when someone's lost a child, I still, my, just having three of my own, um, the, the grief is just so daunting. But that's where I think Jesus is just in the room because I, I, he, God saw his son die and Jesus says, why are you forsaking me? And, and just that real presence, I, I, hopefully I, you know, I, I pray for that. You know, I do. Um, and when my, I think it's more also, I think it's also when clients feel this kind of false sense of guilt, you know, I think that's where I try to, you know, tell them about you know, there's a loving God and he doesn't uh, condemn us based on the law, but he's, he loves us based on grace and he sent his son, you know, and just, if they ask me, I will, I will not, I will not be ashamed to tell them. Yeah. Sometimes they don't want to hear it. And they're like, okay, I know you're a Christian, but um, I hope you don't judge me. I don't believe anything you believe. I'm like, dude, that's okay. I'm just glad you're here. Yeah. So, you know, right. Yeah. So that's kind of where I, that's, where I would are. say, I love it. Yeah, that's where I, I am. think, mm. you know, that's like you said, mm. I think Christians mm. in theory, and probably very often do make the best counselors. And obviously we want to counsel other Christians, but I think want to also mm. especially counsel those who don't know, who don't have that basis that we're talking about. Yeah. So yeah. It's a, we live in a world mm. that is full of sin and mm. tremendous burdens that people bear. And so anything that you can do to help them mm. get a little bit closer to the truth obviously lots going on always but in our society mm. with social media with the news with all of it people just all this junk compounding on people mm -hmm. um what do you recommend for anyone but maybe particularly christians struggling mm. with uh, mental illness or disorders and also just living in this moment that we're living in what what would be your and i know Ooh. i understand that's yeah. a big question it is. So well your, no that's a that's your, okay no it's not too big yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i think i i mean i think it would matter on the diagnosis i suppose i mean if for one i if you're a christian there's an element i want to say i get I get it. You know, the heaviness is it, we we are being ousted out more and more, it seems uh, where um, I don't know if we're going to have uh, a place for this uh, in this world, um, in this country, I suppose. I don't know where we're going, uh, where the far left is going on the Equality Act, for example, uh, terrifies me, especially with my own children and what they might want to do with that. Um, so many things I can think of. So I, I feel the heaviness. It's, 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 it's scary. Uh, yeah. but, um, I think the first thing would just be, uh, at the same time, uh, I was thinking about that because there is this cognitive bias or, or I, I should say it's a cognitive, it's called availability bias. And it's, it's a cognitive error that I think we often make. And so it's called availability bias. And what that means is, Whenever I see it on television, it must be true all over the place. So I 
watched Jaws. I shouldn't have watched it when I was like six. And I'm I'm still terrified to go in the ocean, <laughs> you know, wow. past four four feet. <laughs> I don't like the and my either. my little kids. I was in there with my like little it, kids. But... I was like, don't come back. All right, <laughs> you're gonna die. Um, and the main reason for that is because I saw it, and I think it's everywhere. Uh, yeah. When I was five years old, I used to ride my bike, and um, two or three miles in Illinois. I grew up in Illinois for the first twelve years, and my parents said, "You just go back, and you come back right before dawn." Um, and that actually changed uh, right around, um, Jonathan Hyde talks about this, uh, when kidnapping started appearing on milk cartons. And, uh, oh. quote, helicopter parents, whatever you want to call it, started growing a lot because they saw it everywhere. Even though kidnappings are significantly a lot less than they were when I was in, what was this, 1981, when I was five. I would never allow my five-year-old to go outside, even though we live on a block. I'm looking out. It's I have like 16 children on my block, and I have like 40 adults in a well. And I have a, I have a police officer that lives across the street who is an ex-marine, and I have another ex-marine right over here. My kids are safe, but there's something in me. I have to open up the window, and make sure Eli, my five-year-old, is okay. Why is that? And I have to work on that because I think we as Christians, the one fallacy that the world is kind of buying into is that if I see it, it must be happening all around me. I do think it's okay to do a little self-talk that what do I see? What do I control? I, where is the world that God has placed me in? And when I look at everything around me, honestly, I'm, I'm actually doing okay. I'm doing really well. I think that's the very first thing is to yeah. kind of challenge that kind of availability bias um, because, but that's, I think when you, the more you do it, I think your anxiety goes down. So I'm, I'm significantly a lot less anxious about my kids than I used to be when I was first a new parent. Yeah. But I also think, you know, if you're really struggling with mental illness, I, this is my advice personally. I, I think you find a very good clinician that respects your faith um, more so than just uh, just finding your next Christian counselor. And the reason why I say that, I know it may be a little controversial, is because I do believe that somebody that respects your faith but's very good at what they do is going to help you. Um, it's oh. good that you talk to somebody. It's good that you, you know, um, and I, I could share this a little bit. I have a, I do have a, a therapist and he's not a, a believer. He's been helping me tremendously for the past seven years. Um, and but he really respects my conservative theology. He listens to me and he has really challenged me. So I think Christians sometimes are hesitant, like I have to find the right type of spiritual leader. Um, I think if you go to a really good church, I I think it's OK to find the counselor that's going to really respect who you are. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, ideally, it'd be great if you could find somebody in your church that, you know, right, but right. I realize that that's that's not always the case for yeah. for us as believers. Yeah. So um, I I'm, you know. Yeah, I, I, I think I think it's that. And I, I do I do love relationships and group therapy and to try to find somebody that's not going that's going to accept both your failings, like I was saying earlier, but also challenge you um, to, you know, because there are a lot of people that just kind of say things that they're not necessarily, you know, that, that probably should say and to try to find the right type of people. I I think sometimes we as Christians in the church, we want to open up way too much to way too many people. And we end up getting hurt in the process because sometimes we open up maybe to the wrong people. They could be our brothers and sisters in the Lord, but they don't quite have the the gift of 
helping you through that. Because yeah. I think with counseling, it's not preaching. It's not it's not even teaching. It's actually helping you figure stuff out on your own. Um I, I you know, I do believe that that's that's the difference between counseling, preaching, and teaching is that counseling is really me turning the question back on Carmen is like, Carmen, help me out with the way you've processed stuff. And I give you that freedom to do that. So I would just say, if you have some really hurting things about what you're going through, make sure you seek out people that could do that well. You still love everybody in the church, but make sure you find the right type of people that know how to um, encourage you in that way. Kind of, you know, so I, I think that would be, that would be my, my little 10 yeah, cents, I that suppose. Was great. That was excellent yeah. Advice. Well, <laughs> right. yeah, I think mm. it just rings very true in that I think you're right. Like, especially in kind of isolated times, mm. it's very tempting mm. when you find a Christian community to just sort of, you know, feel like, well, I guess I better tell all these people <laughs> what, what's right, happening. Right. And like maybe that's good, depending on the community. Yeah. But very yeah. often, you know, maybe our expert our expectations for what that's gonna do or how that's gonna yeah. feel aren't really lined right. up with reality. Whereas if you like mm. you said, find someone who is trained, who is an expert on helping you, yeah. you know, work through what you want to work through, that's probably mm. going to be a much more effective way to go about yes. it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. But yeah. open for open for debate on that. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Well, thank you so oh, much, yeah. Peter. This was yeah. very delightful talking to you. I usually... Well, I feel like my when I'm on the podcast, it's very like, let's go. We're going to fight the cultural left. <laughs> that's, that's the vibe. And I think you are, right. you are fighting the good fight against the cultural left as well. But well, you're doing it. it gently and you're doing right. it with right. good questions. Yeah, hopefully. And yeah. In, a different, in a different way that I need yeah. to be reminded of myself mm. and take mm take what you're saying to heart and I'm mm. excited to share this with our audience. I think they'll really enjoy it. I really appreciate you having me on as I'm very humbled and thank you so yeah. much. It's such oh, a great you want, opportunity. You plug, plug your podcast, tell everybody where or what it is and where they can find it. Oh yeah. Yeah. So we, uh, my, my good friend, Brad Mills and I, um, we started a podcast called sound engagement. It's uh, very new. I even got the name wrong the other day. I tried to have, I tried to that invite news. Coleman. I, yeah, I tried to fight somebody. And Brad said, you realize that that's not the name of our podcast. I'm like, oh, wait. So I had to rewrite the person that I wanted to get on the podcast. Actually, it's called some, so it's called Sound Engagement. And um, we just started very similar to what you're doing. He's a pastor. I'm a clinician and trying to address these issues, uh, you know, uh, in a way that allows debate and dialogue and uh, research and open open ended questions, but also bold in our um, bold in the gospel, yeah. you know, because that's the only thing that's going to really help right. at the end of the day. And 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 I really do believe that, especially with the way shame is significantly overwhelming our our brothers and our friends and our yeah. citizens. Like we have hope for you. You don't have to do this. <laughs> There's there Jesus has covered this, and you know. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. we have a we have a very hopeful message. Oh, I love it. Um, yeah. yeah. I hope everybody mm. you need to listen to this podcast. It will be great. It's called Sound <laughs> yeah. Engagement. Sound Engagement just started. Right. Thank you so much. This is you a great opportunity.